It's so interesting because Quinta literally told all of us at one one of those gatherings when we were all together, she said, everybody change nothing about yourself. <laughs> change absolutely nothing. Don't think you have to do this. Don't think you have to do that. Come back just as you are. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are breaking down the state of the 2022 Emmys race and chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year. I am Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and I promised or warned you that she'd be back. My guest co-host today (laughs) is Kristen Baldwin. Hello. How are you, Kristen? I'm good. I mean, I guess it's uh, flattering whether you promised or warned. That's true. That's true. Uh, And I'm very happy to have you back. Um, So look, nomination voting starts this week. It runs until June 22nd. Hard to believe we are already here in mid-June. But look, you you guys, voters, if you're listening, you don't have to rush it. I I highly encourage you to listen to every episode of The Awardist, consume everything (laughs) that we have online, our digital magazines. There's going to be more coming from us during the voting window. Uh, so take your time. It's fine. You have until the 27th. Just make sure you vote before uh, the cutoff that day. Okay. So on today's episode, uh, Kristen chats with someone who uh, delivers a killer performance uh, this year, Joshua Jackson, <laughs> who starred in Peacock's limited series, Dr. Death. And speaking of dead Uh, The three women who I chat with for our first interview today had my friends and I, pretty much everyone who watched, saying that exact word, dead, I'm dead, because of, you know, (laughs) a code for, I'm laughing so hard, I'm dead. Um, These these three people, we had so much fun, uh, absolutely hilarious chat. Uh, It's Abbott Elementary star and creator Quinta Brunson and her co-stars Cheryl Lee Ralph and Janelle James. I know uh, you love that show as well, don't you, Kristen? I absolutely do. And I'm jealous you got to speak to them together. And you know what? Give them all Emmys. Give them all Emmy nominations at the very least. Yeah, at the very least. Uh, right. It would have to be a tie for Cheryl and um, Janelle. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, they, they're they also deserving. And I mean, really, you think about Cheryl Lee Ralph has such an incredible body of work. and. Yes. This role at this point in her career, I know she's just over the moon and thrilled, you know, for a number of reasons. She's working with an an incredible cast, but also, you know, what this show means to so many in the audience, specifically teachers getting to see this. It's um, it's a great show and, and I love it for all of them, how well it's doing. Yes. And uh, binge it now on Hulu if you haven't yeah. watched it's such an easy watch, uh, easy to get through. Uh, we mentioned um, Cheryl and uh, Janelle. They are, of course, both uh, in contention in the supporting actress in a comedy series category. And I kind of want to break that one down a bit. There were seven nominees last year. Um, here's who they are up against for nominations. Hannah Waddingham, who won last year for Ted Lasso, also from Ted Lasso, Juno Temple. We have a few from uh, Hacks, Hannah Einbinder. Meg Stalter is really, uh, after this season, she's, <laughs> (laughs) You know, she's kind of her odds are increasing because she had some great stuff, especially at the end of the season Uh, from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Alex Borstein and Marin Hinkle 
from SNL. All three of these women were nominated last year, Kate McKinnon, Cecily Strong, and A.D. Bryant. We have Sarah Goldberg from Barry, Yvonne Orji from Insecure, Amy Ryan from Only Murders in the Building, Molly Shannon for the other two, and for I Love That For You. She could be nominated for either. And then from Schmigadoon, Ariana DeBose, uh, Atlanta star, Zazie Beetz. There are so many in this category. That's just a little sampling so there. So many. Yeah. Who, uh, who are the standouts for you? I mean, I think there are a few that are, I don't want to say a lock simply because then I will be, have to mm-hmm. eat my words. But I think, you know, Alex Borstein <laughs> is somebody who's won twice. She's been nominated yeah. three times so far, so far. And I do think she's great, but like, let's move on. You know, the show has, is past its peak <laughs> and, the, you know, she's very good in the show, but there's nothing to yeah. s- new to see here, folks. So let's open up some space. Right. Uh, I think Kate McKinnon for sure, uh, you know, her final yeah. season and her goodbye as Mrs. Rafferty <laughs> on the spaceship was <laughs> a real heartstring tugger. Um, and, you know, same yeah. with Cec- Cecily Strong. You know, she's, she's people enjoy her a lot. And also people, uh, you know, I think Schmigadoon helped raise her profile even more. Um, Yes. I think of all the newcomers, I think the one with the best bet, the best momentum is Janelle James from Abbott Elementary. I mean, Uh she is so, uh, she just steals every scene as Principal Ava, you know, and I think that it's such a a, a crowded race. I would love to see Cheryl Lee Mm -hmm. Ralph get it as well. But if you know, if only one of them is going to get it, I think it'll be Janelle. Yeah. Well, and they have very different, uh, I mean, the characters are so wildly different and in turn, that means their, their sense of, uh, comedy has to be very different because Cheryl is very, uh, straight laced as Barbara. Mm -hmm. Uh, and she has, you know, she, she's great with some sarcasm and, uh, you know, that kind of dry wit. Whereas Janelle is just so, (laughs) so absurd in so many ways. And, you know, the really interesting thing that everyone will get to hear in the interview is that there's very little improv on that show, which is just wild to me because she's someone who, and she said, people say this to her all the time. She's like, Oh, they just kind of let you run loose. And she's like, no, that's just how good the writing is. Like, I need you guys to understand that's how good our writers are, that they just understand the actors so well and how to write to them. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, but I'm with you in that camp. I think Janelle, uh, I, I would love to see Cheryl, uh, as well get nominated, but I think Janelle stands a, a really strong chance here. I think Hannah Waddingham, mm-hmm. of course, I, I really think we're going to see her again. Season two of Ted Lasso, um, not as strong as season one, but there were some really stellar moments mm-hmm. during the season and she got to do some great stuff. Uh, Juno Temple, I love, I, I'm so happy to see her kind of star on the rise. She's in the offer. She's getting other uh, you know, booking other movies and series now as well. Um, I think she'll still get in I here think this she year will too. And you yeah. know, she's great, and and I'm not going to begrudge her a nomination. I just, you know, I do hope that. Uh, I would hate to see uh, Sarah Goldberg, for example, be totally overlooked for Barry to- this, yeah. especially this season. The last two episodes have been really strong for her. Sally has <laughs> gone on a real emotional uh, journey uh, culminating in a complete meltdown in the most uh, uh, one of the most recent episodes. So it's hard because there are just so many deserving actresses. That's why it's like, okay, you know, Alex Borstein, lovely lady, really good, but you've been nominated, you know, three times. You've won twice. Let's, 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 
let's open up the playing field for some some fresh uh, blood. Yep. Could not agree with you more. Uh, Let's talk supporting actor in a comedy series. There were eight nominees last year. Uh, Four of them were from Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. Brett Goldstein, who won, Nick Muhammad, Brendan Hunt, Jeremy Swift. Uh, There's also Phil Dunster, of course, uh, in consideration. Um, From Barry, we have Henry Winkler, who has won. Uh, Also from that show, Anthony Kerrigan and Stephen Root. From SNL, Bowen Yang and Kenan Thompson. From Atlanta, Brian Tyree Henry and Lakeith Stanfield. From uh, the show that I thought was just going to be a limited series, but it is, in fact, uh, it's been renewed for season two, so it'll be back. But David Hyde Pierce uh, from the HBO Max comedy Julia, about Julia Child. And then uh, from Hacks, Paul W. Downs, who is one of the uh, (laughs) co-creators, co-showrunners, who just had some great stuff this season. Carl Clemens Hopkins was nominated last year. I don't quite think they have the material this year for a nomination. Do you? No, I mean, they're very good, but the storyline that yeah. they uh, had to work with was a little, felt a little meandering. Um, but I agree with you, Paul W. Downs. So excellent mm. as Deborah's agent. As, and just, you know, yeah. uh, the amount of, uh, he does exasperation and sort of, uh, <laughs> sort of like yeah. shocked exasperation. He's so good at that. <laughs> And his scenes with Meg Stalter yeah, and, and are I, That's wonderful. exactly what I was about to say. The the two of them volleying back and forth <laughs> and his, the stuff she says that he, I mean, and, and he, uh, I, I don't know. I, they their scenes together are just really kind of comedy gold um and then there's also you know like that that show uh the after party um ben schwartz is getting uh, a lot of attention for that but i mean here i i think brett goldstein like you kind of said earlier don't want to say like anyone's a lock but i think brett yeah. goldstein might be a lock i don't know about the other guys though this year i don't think brendan hunt jeremy swift phil dunster it's going to be it's a, it's a bit of a battle for them i agree and and even nick muhammad i didn't love uh, you know that that the, arc for the turn his, they took with the him. Turn they took, and yeah. I I don't know that it suited his skills as well. You know, uh, and at least you mm. know toward the end. And I just think there's more uh competition. I don't think it will be a a, a packed lasso category. Um, if if anyone yeah. got a nomination beyond Brett, I would love it to be Phil Dunster because I think he's so yes, great agree. as Jamie Tart and his interview on uh after Jamie gets off the reality show <laughs> and he's on yeah. the daytime TV yeah. giving the interview uh, about the his strategy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, so perfect. Um but yeah I I, I think Tony Shaloub who is such uh, a great yeah. guy, very talented, but again, like he's yeah. won before, he's been nom three times in this role, like the show yeah. is past its peak. Yeah. Let's the man has plenty of Emmys from Monk. Let's just let's let's give a space to Monk somebody too, yeah. else, you know. So I will never say that there could be enough nominations for Keenan Thompson. Like he needs to be nominated in every mm, category mm-hmm. that he is eligible going forward. Yeah. But yeah, I I, you know. I would love to see Anthony Kerrigan get another nomination for Barry. Uh, you know, he, this season, especially he's 
really gone beyond just, you know, comic relief as Noho Hank. There's his uh, Noho Hank's relationship with Cristobal has been really sweet and like added new layers to that character. Mm So yeah, it's, I hope that they clear out some of the, you know, the lasso uh, names, you know, let's give it to Brett. You know, if we, if we need to give it to anyone else, let's give it to Phil Dunster and then, (laughs) and then, you know, let's open up the field. Yep, I'm with you on that one. Um, what's interesting is to see how many folks at this point with their predictions, not as many of them have Keenan Thompson as yeah. I would have expected. Uh, Bowen Yang is up there for uh, for a lot of them. Um, and, and of course, you know, as, as SNL goes, this was also the final season for Pete Davidson. I don't think that nomination is going to happen. Um, but because he really didn't... He, I think from that show, he's more known, well, just from one of two things, the Chad who just, <laughs> uh, you know, utters like one right. word. And so there's not really much acting involved there. But, you know, Pete's best stuff on that show is when he's on Weekend Update right. as himself. Uh, and I don't think that's really uh, deserving of a nomination. I, the but, only moment I remember yeah. really standing out is, you know, also that. I don't know if you called a rap or a song, but the long ass movies, you know, like he's good in those. I don't, I agree. I don't think anybody uh, feels the need to send him off uh, with a nod, but you know, I, um, now that so many people are leaving, I hope people remember that Kenan Thompson is the glue and they need to nominate him every year that he's on. He is the glue uh, of that show. Um, And he's just so good in everything. He, he's, He's just one of those people when you when you see him and you know he's in a sketch, I, my eyes tend to always gravitate toward him because I want to see what he's going to do. Or there's usually some kind of like odd face mm-hmm. he'll make or something that's just so he perfect. Elevates uh, it all. He elevates it He's so good. He really does. Um, last time you were here on the podcast with me, you sang the praises of uh, the Apple TV Plus drama Pachinko. And uh, dear listeners, please stay tuned Uh for our interview with some of the folks from that show uh, in a couple weeks. Um, But Kristen, when you joined me then, uh, we talked about some people who had the potential to be double nominees. um, And there's someone we didn't talk about because, well, I mean, if we're going to be honest, I don't think he's going to get more than one nomination. uh, But he has had some really great work this year, and he deserves some love. Let's talk about Hamish Link later, because he was in, what, he he had Midnight Mass. uh, He's in Angeline. He's also... In Absolutely. Uh, and Hamish Linkletter. Very different characters in all of them. He's so he's good. He's so good. And it's bugging me that he's not in the mix more right now as a uh, in the limited series category uh, for actor because, mm-hmm. first of all, Midnight Mass, yes, it was September 2021. That wasn't that long ago. Let's, you know, let's nope. remember uh, that Midnight Mass is from Mike Flanagan, the creator of the Haunting an- Anthology. And uh, Hamish mm-hmm. Linklater played uh, a, you know, sort of a kind and shy young priest who comes to a small uh, fishing island uh, to fill in for mm-hmm. their elderly Monsignor when he falls ill. Or so he says. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, all right. sorts of uh, supernatural shenanigans occur. And uh, mm-hmm. hell kind of hell breaks, breaks loose. loose. Hell breaks and, loose. But the thing is <laughs> that Father Paul, who he plays, is you he's he's sort of leading his parishioners down this terrible path but he's doing it out of pure you know he really thinks he's doing god's will and doing the yeah. right thing and uh he right. and 
the only way the show is going to work is if you really fall for Father Paul as well, if you're mesmerized by him. And it's really, you know, it, it hinges on the performance of Hamish Linklater. And he's so good in this. And he just, he's funny, but he breaks your heart and he's, you know, he can be scary. And yeah, so it just bums me out that not only is he not getting enough attention for that, especially given that very recently, he's very funny and, and kind of, uh, you know, kind of poignant in, in Angeline, he plays uh, her sort of fan club president slash personal, personal assistant. Mm-hmm. And then he plays uh, Jeb Magruder and Nixon lackey in Gaslit. And, you know, Darren, my colleague, mm-hmm. Darren Franich wasn't a huge fan of Gaslit, but he said Hamish is really funny in all of his scenes and does sort of mediocre idiot. Well, which is what these, <laughs> these Nixon lackeys kind all of the were. People in yeah. That, yeah. So, um, so <laughs> yep. I just want to put out a plea, you know, to remind people that he's so great in these three things, but I think his best shot, like you said, is probably midnight mass, man, that series. I did not know where oh, it was man. going, but I couldn't stop watching. Um, and, and he's so good. Also the, um, I, I just forgot her name, but the actress who plays the, the nun, oh, oh. man, she was wild. Um, and I, I remember a couple friends texting. They were like, you're watching this show, right? Because this woman is scaring the yeah. absolute beef out you of me. You know what? Speaking of other double nominees who probably won't get either, but should Annabeth Gish is in uh, Midnight Mass and she's yes. a doctor and she kind of figures out what's going on. And she's great. Yes. She's also, she'd probably be a guest this season in Barry. Uh, she has a, mm. a brief arc as the wife of uh, somebody that Barry had assassinated. And she and her son have a very like powerful and kind of tragic arc uh this season in barry so she's just out there doing great work just like hamish yeah um by the way should be doing yeah. more work like give me more annabeth gish I, I love her so much uh well speaking of people we love uh we've already teased it and now it is officially time coming up class is in session with abbott elementary's quinta brunson cheryl lee ralph and janelle james the awardist will be right back after this short break Welcome back to The Awardist. They are all absolutely hysterical on Abbott Elementary, and I'm very pleased to share with you that they are just as funny in real life. So without further ado, here they are, Quinta Brunson, Cheryl Lee Ralph, and Janelle James. Quinta Brunson, Janelle James, and Goddess, also known as Cheryl Lee Ralph. I told you I'd bring it back up. We had this discussion beforehand what I should what I should call her. Uh, we settled on goddess, but hello uh, to all of you. Thanks so much for joining us here on the awardist. How are all of you? Good. Good. Happy to hear it. Well, um, this show, uh, hopefully you're not sick of hearing it uh, from people. I-, I love this so much. It is a show that my friends and I like sit together on weekend nights when we're like, we're not going out because there is a pandemic and we don't want to be around people. We're, we're like binging Abbott elementary. I kid you not. And we love it so much. I hear so many people when I am talking to other, uh, you know, actors, filmmakers, whatever, what they're watching, they are telling me Abbott Elementary. It has been overwhelming the number of responses I hear. So congratulations to all of you. I, I assume you are feeling the love. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I feel like we hear it just as much as you do and hear it every day. <laughs> so we are feeling the love. It's incredible to like have such a positive response to this show. Uh, I, I can't even imagine. Well, the the first thing I really want to get into here with you is what was 
the moment, if you are looking back over the first season of the show, when each of you realized that it was a hit? Like, was there an obvious moment? For me, it was during the shoot of the pilot. And Tyler, who plays Gregory, the two of us just had a moment where we looked at each other and he said, you feel it, right? And I said, man, you feel it too, don't you? He said, yeah. The It was the fact that we both felt that we had something very special. The, the whole feeling yeah. that, wow, you had six people who actually really got along, who actually fit like a zipper and made everything that Quinta had created just come alive. And it was absolutely magical. And we, he and I felt it at the same time. Um, I mean, I don't know what that, I don't know what it feels like to feel that something is a hit. I know I knew from the time I read it that it was a good show. I don't know if I I was predicting that it was going to hit much less this in this way, but I knew it was a good show and was hoping for a hit. So uh, everybody, it seems agreed with me (laughs) that it it was a good show and it was like a, a fun experience. That's what I was feeling more than thinking about whether it's a hit or not. I was just like, this is, this has been great, a great experience shooting this, this show with these people. Yeah. I think for me, it was um, probably when watching um, or hearing just people, everyday people talk about the show. Mm -hmm. I think that means that you've like done a good job making a network television show when, you know, people were telling me I'm at this random restaurant and people are talking about Abbott next next to me or at a friend who was at like a resort and and over, like someone just was talking to, about the show next to him at a resort. And to me, that started to feel like, OK, you know, mm-hmm. the word of mouth is is happening. People are talking about the show. The word is traveling. And that felt like how I know when a show is 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 good when people other people are saying like you need to see this that's when I felt like we had done our job. Mm, yeah, I, right. Because I guess there's something a little different too. You know, you're in the industry, you're hearing industry folks talk about it. But right when you're outside of Hollywood, it's something a little different. Yeah, yeah. It, that's when to me that matters. And and it was mm-hmm. it was had been a while of airing, and I knew that people really were enjoying the show on social media and like friends and stuff were enjoying the show. But for me, it's like people I don't know who are in my social media atmosphere mm-hmm. watching the show and liking it feels like a yeah. very big thing. And it's magic to see and hear people light up talking about the show. It's the excitement. I was in DC and people were just like, oh my God, I love this show. And when they talk about their experiences and what they feel, people talk about their job, especially those people who are in education. It's like, I mean, it's like, wow, it's such a, such a great, great feeling. Mm -hmm. Cheryl, when can you, can you compare it to any other specific experience in your career? You know what? I've had some great experiences but nothing quite like this. As amazing as Dreamgirls was, it's definitely not quite like this. As much as people love Sister Act 2, it's definitely not like this. People really love Moesha too, but it is definitely not like this. This feels like a warm hug from even some of the most unexpected people, and it happens at the most random times. I still live my life and like walk down the street 
and people will be walking their dogs and they'll like, Mrs. Howard, I'm an educator and I love the show. I love <laughs> I can't wait till you all come back. It's just, oh my God, it just feels so good. And I, 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 I was saying to some friends, no one should have as much joy as I'm carrying around inside of me being a part of this cast doing this show. Yeah. Mm. And you know, that's not always the case. You hear folks, uh, you know, actors talking about their experiences. So when you get that, it's, it's uh, special. Yeah. Love hearing that. Um, Quinta, mm -hmm. hearing, of course, Cheryl talk, I understand why you would hope and want for uh, this TV legend to be part of the show with you. But specifically for the two of you, are, do you find, are there any parallels in the relationships between Janine and Miss Howard and Quinta and Cheryl? Oh, I think I definitely look at Cheryl as um, a beautiful <laughs> woman, but also a an OG of of acting. <laughs> has been doing this for so long and has been so solid and <clears throat> consistently putting out good work. And I think that's how Janine looks at Barbara for sure. I mean, that's how I look at Cheryl. To me, just like a living. <laughs> a living legend in our presence, but very good at what you do. Like Cheryl is a good actress. And I was really excited to be able to make something like Abbott to have, because Cheryl gets to have yet another platform to be mm. great in. And I think in a different way than we've seen in a long time. So that's, that's how I feel where I'm, you know, sometimes watching her make certain moves and I'm, I'm in awe. It feels weird. I'm talking about you like not right here, Cheryl, but you know, I, I just we'll, we'll turn off her camera a second. <laughs> of some of your acting abilities, you know, like just you're a fantastic actress. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Cheryl, you know, th this role, it's one that I, I really kind of can't imagine anyone else in the role, but you, what have you found yourself latching onto most um, and and getting to do here that previous roles haven't offered you. I think it's the it's the it's the being of it all. You know, sometimes mm. I would be doing what I think is absolutely nothing, and then Quinta or <laughs> Janelle might say to me, "Now that was everything. That was <laughs> everything." And I'm just just like, really? I was literally just here. So it's, um, for me, it's a very relaxed sort of situation, you know, from my comfort shoes to my twin sets to the girls. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very relaxed way of approaching a character. It's not, we don't, we don't, I don't have to be on at all, mm. but I have to be on my game for this character, mm. for this woman, you know, where the placement of her voice, the actions, the fact that she doesn't always need to talk to let you know exactly how she feels. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a whole nother thing. And it's like, as an actor, you're always thankful for those moments, those roles to be able to add a little bit more to your arsenal of qualities mm -hmm. as an actor, as a performer. Mm -hmm. And I really yeah. think I've been given a gift from Quinta in playing Mrs. Howard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you're right. Some of those quiet moments, 
boy, your side eye is top notch. Let me say it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, Janelle, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that school principal was probably not on your bucket list of roles that you wanted to play <laughs> in your lifetime. <laughs> um, so, well, first of all, did, did you audition? Was this offered? And once you, you know, were really kind of digging into the role, maybe even before uh, you signed on, what questions did you have about Principal Coleman? Uh, I did audition uh, and I did get called back. Uh, <laughs> so that's, you know, that's why I'm here. But um, as far as whether principal was on bucket, I didn't I didn't have a bucket list of anything that I wanted to to play. And I think that helps me just in general doing acting and that I don't have any expectations of anything. I just uh, look for stuff that seems that it's in my wheelhouse and would be fun to do and people I want to work with. Uh as far as questions about this character, I had I didn't really have any. I felt like I know who she was, and so I just did it. <laughs> um, I don't really have, yeah, I don't really have a technique or or or, or preparation. I'm just uh, I'm just doing. But I feel like uh, that kind of lends to this character that she's unprepared, maybe. So <laughs> I'm I'm prepared by being unprepared. I don't have any. I really don't have any pre yeah. pre notions about what uh, acting is supposed to be or anything. I just really felt like this is a person that I, I know and I get her motivation and, and, and I'm going to do it. Yeah. That's a, I love that way of approaching it. Quinta, did there ever come a moment <laughs> like once you guys were getting into filming, like, did you ever find yourselves you with the writers, um, adjusting in any way, like playing to, you know, the, the, the powers that be of your cast? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I had written the pilot and then the pilot was casted. So before the pilot, uh, you know, I, I didn't have people in mind necessarily to play each character. Mm. Um, it was all kind of based on auditions. Like I will say Cheryl was on my wish list for Barbara, but I just didn't think that we would be able to, um, have her at the time, yeah. but everyone else was kind of open-ended, except for actually, except for um, Gregory. I did have Tyler in mind for that role because I had worked with him before and yeah. thought that he would just be great to play it. Um, so then once we got our cast and the pilot was picked up to series, then we got in the writer's room. And what was great is we got to watch the pilot. Um, all the writers got to go watch that pilot, including me, and now know the strengths that we can play to with this cast. and. Um, it's not that we necessarily changed anything about the characters in their original, uh, conception, but we did know that, okay, Lisa Ann Walter does this really well. She's very good with the camera in this way. Cheryl Lee Ralph is very good. Um, you know, in, in these quiet moments and, and the strength there that we can use. And, um, Christopher Perfetti is a wonderful physical yet very calm actor. And, and just once you get the people, you know that you can start to think about that in the writing. And so that's that's one of the most exciting parts, I think, of writing is um, now, now you have these like big like dolls, like life-size dolls you also <laughs> get to play with with your writing. So yeah. Yeah. Was it always the plan that uh, Chris's character Jacob was going to be gay? Or was that something that happened as you guys were kind of writing and and breaking the, the storyline of the season? So originally when I 
came up with the idea. There was actually one more character that I had in it. Um, and she was a queer character, a queer, a queer teacher. And after the first round of development for Abbott, it felt like there were too many main characters and, 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 and we, one kind of had to go. So Blair went and the ones you see who are still with us stayed. And I had the feeling that I wanted to have, you know, the, the queer representation with one of our characters. And I always thought that Jacob as a character would be next in line for that. And before we started fully writing the first season, I brought that into play and, you know, all of our writers agreed. Then it was a conversation with our actor, Chris Perfetti, because that wasn't there when he auditioned. So I wanted to make sure that that was something that he was okay with and he was absolutely down. And it's something we kind of knew from the moment we started the writer's room. So in a way it was always there, but it wasn't. Um, It just kind of came about for his character when we started writing, you know, like episode two. Yeah. Yeah. Had a bit of an evolution. Um, yeah. Talk about queer representation, but uh, you know, the representation on this show uh, extends way beyond that. And, you know, when we look at the current landscape of TV, that's something that we're always pushing for. Where is inclusivity? Where is representation? Where is diversity? Um, I, I have to imagine, I know you hear a lot from teachers, but beyond that, seeing such a phenomenal black cast here with the queer representation. Um, what are you hearing from folks in those regards? Well, it, it feels wonderful that people are feeling represented in this show, whether that be through queer, queer representation, black Americans or educators too, like a minority groups feeling seen in this show. I will say that in creating Abbott, Weirdly, my goal was not like diversity. It was just, these are the people that make up Abbott Elementary. These are the people who work at that school. At this school as a predominantly Black, you know, teaching group and a predominantly Black student body population. And ultimately, I feel that's the key to more diversity in television is not just sticking characters into like... A white world, but actually greenlighting the stories that naturally bring those people to the forefront. Because then I'm not, we weren't worried about diversity at all while we were making this show. We were worried about being funny. And that's because we didn't have to do the task of like sticking people in to fulfill some quota. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We already brought everything that's being looked for so hard to the table. Mm -hmm. So it just goes to show like if more stories like this are shows like this are brought to the forefront and greenlit, we won't even have to have those like kind of corny discussions anymore about, you know, where's the diversity in this thing? Honestly, like don't stick me in Mrs. Maisel. I'd rather see a show that's about our people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked about being more concerned about being funny. I want to talk about some of the things that are so funny this season. Um, (laughs) Well, first you, you mentioned the students, those young actors. Oh my gosh. They they are so good. And I've heard you talk somewhere, I think it was at the finale event, Quinta, about um, how some of them maybe don't quite grasp that you guys aren't actually their teachers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So some of the younger ones, um, this is their first time on a set ever. And our set also looks a lot like a real school. Mm. They they are aware they're coming to the Warner Brothers lot. They're coming into a thing, but 
you know, these are kids who are in uniform. They see us with the teacher badges on and they, yeah. they, we also have to, you know, step in there sometimes and go Shh, or whatever. <laughs> they're doing worksheets while they're, while they're sitting there being filmed. They're just doing actual like school papers. They have school on the lot too, yeah. you know, with their studio teachers. So a lot of them have this like blurred line and for what it's worth, we did try to interfere. I did try a couple times to tell them my name is Quinta. <laughs> they, they said they saw Miss Teague's like they saw the principal. They saw that's they saw what they their kids, you know. Um, but they're just delightful. If anything, it made them more natural on this mm. mockumentary style show to have yeah. these kids who are so new to the game instead of maybe kids who've been doing this since they were like you know, babies. babies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like right. we kind of had these fresh newbies who were so compelling to the mockumentary style. Mm-hmm. I'm the big baby on the show. I just realized. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that. No, seriously. One of the things that made, not to compare it to the babies, but one thing that made, I think continues to make Janelle so compelling on screen. And, what, and it was like, it was just so raw. <laughs> and that was really, you know, I look at Ava as like a brand new archetype on television. And I think with presenting a brand new archetype, you really need like raw, like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it helps for someone to come in. One day I told Quinta I was going to get acting lessons because I was intimidated standing next to Cheryl Lee and I didn't <laughs> want to embarrass myself. And she and she you basically told me not to. <laughs> oh, no. You're I like, don't know. Why? <laughs> And so, There's hey, something to be said for raw talent. All I heard was less work and, 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 and less money spent for me, so I didn't. <laughs> hey, for the record, I'm not, like, against acting. I did have fear, though, of Mel going somewhere in the middle of the season and someone being, like, eh, 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 and doing, I don't know, and, like, without knowing what you were doing, undoing everything that was special about you. I don't know. <laughs> It was so, it's so interesting because Quinta literally told all of us at one one of those gatherings when we were all together, she said, everybody change nothing about yourself. Change absolutely nothing. Don't think you have to do this. Don't think you have to do that. Come back just as you are. So, yeah, yeah. Well, very wise there. Uh, some great advice. Okay, so desking. Desking is something you totally made up, right? Please tell me that is not something the kids were really doing. Well, we made that one up. Uh, okay. We actually, we were last minute trying to find a new episode because one of our episodes, it didn't make it far. We were at the story area with it, which is like the beginning of the process it was like, ah, we don't know about this because it was very similar to another story we had. So we mm. threw it out. But I very quickly came up with the idea of desking of just the notion of it in the writer's room helped build it out. But like I had seen kids online who were stealing paper towel. Um, what do you call it? it the paper towel dispensers. Yeah. Oh, they were stealing yeah. them from their classrooms. And this was a TikTok trend. And I'm like, this is probably driving the teachers crazy, but I'm only seeing the kid end of it, which is like, they were stealing it to show off on TikTok. And I was like, what if something similar like that happened at Abbott? What would that mean for our team? Mm. And I, that wound up being one of my favorite episodes. I know it's like one of the room's favorite episodes because we got to be so silly. I feel like everybody's on fire in that one. Like uh, Janelle and like Lisa Janelle, and that like, I, it just is so good. Cheryl, oh my God, Cheryl. Like <laughs> my desk. Uh, 
Oh my gosh. Like just <laughs> silly. Everybody is just on fire. It's one of our favorite ones for sure. Mm-hmm. So good. Another one of my favorites, uh, it's, it's when uh, you're telling him to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, but uh, not little Andrew because he's taking a principled stand against nationalism. It's, yes. <laughs> it's such yeah. a great like one-off, almost like a throwaway, but there are so yeah. many small moments like that yes. that are so funny and you're seeing them turned into, you know, they, they take on a whole other life on social media. Yeah. I'm wondering like, do yeah. each of you have your own favorite jokes from season one? Ooh, okay. One of my favorites is one that maybe even other people don't like that much, but Janelle, Ava has this line um, where Janine comes up to her and is like, you know, really what happened is about the student getting transferred, Courtney. Mm. Um, and there's a story behind one, why it's one of my favorites, but Janelle says, or Ava says, um, I don't know, girl, things happen all day. And that was something I actually said in the writer's room when they, I came in the room one day and they asked me why something was happening. And I truly was like, I don't know. Things happen. All day. <laughs> <laughs> and I meant it. And the writers thought it was so funny that they wrote it to Ava. And then Janelle's delivery of it was just like, yes, like it's so like, <laughs> empowering. To be like, <laughs> and clearly I do a good job in my job. I'm like, <laughs> Like, you know, unlike how we portray Ava, but Ava, that was a moment where she's like, I don't know, that's not the point. Like, I just feel like it was a moment of her kindred to, to Ava. Yeah. <laughs> Cheryl and Janelle, favorite jokes? I mean, I have, you know, the ones that are popular and have been memed and everything, but my favorite, it's not even a joke. It's uh, when Cheryl is, uh, I'm offering Cheryl my Brazier money and... <laughs> She she dresses me down. And then when she says, Ava, I really wanted to show that Barbara is like the head of this school and everybody respects her, even Ava. So all I said was, huh? But I said it so scared because I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you be swearing you're not an actor. That, you be like, I'm not an actor. That is so actor. I didn't even know you. Uh, <laughs> so great. Yeah, this is just how I said, huh? You know, because I was, I was like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. I wanted to convey that like nobody messes with Barbara. I can confirm that that huh has been used in my uh, friend group text threads. I can confirm that. Oh, really? That. <laughs> oh, that's good. I don't really see it anywhere. And I see all the other stuff. So um, that's great. And then one of my other favorite jokes that I think don't get any shine is just Quinta's whole run when she goes to get the chicken and she's like wet and her mascara <laughs> is like, <laughs> and she's like, if you want to walk, you got to talk. She just goes <laughs> It's it's so underrated. I just love that whole run. So those are my those are my favorite. So good. That's um, so yeah, good. that's a good one. <laughs> it's so silly with the lightning and thunder and just her face. I love it. So. <laughs> mine mine would have to be one with <laughs> Ava. And Ava <laughs> says something about the zombies. And the zombies oh, yeah. are coming. And she says, well, yep. let me back my tasty ass up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And then in that same episode, she said, oh, the apocalypse, it soon come. That day soon come. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. I had to hold myself in laughing. That made me laugh so much. Then... When Janine gets stuck 
at the top of the ladder and won't come down because she is fearfully stuck to the top of the ladder with those horrible big mm. shoes just filling up the screen. I was just like, oh my God, this is hilarious. I was laughing so much. It was just- There's also uh, an underrated moment in that episode where you, I didn't see this, but Cheryl, when I saw it in editing, I was like, I can't believe that little moment. It's when Lisa r- runs out the way, my Branzino. And you get, you get, you, you, you like take a push real quick, but the way you hit the wall. Yeah. You did. Yeah. yeah. That little physical comedy moment was so, I don't know, it was so fun and unexpected. And that became one of my favorite little things in editing where I laughed at it every single time I saw it. It was so funny. Seeing me body slammed up against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's so good. I I understand the uh, the ladder thing. By the way, I will climb up one, but coming down, uh, it's a. Di- I don't. I don't know. I don't get it. But I was I was there with Janine on that one, and I was there with Janine too because it was one of those things where there are about three things that were written in the writers' room where I was there and everything, where I didn't process that I would have to be the one doing it until I was on set. So <laughs> I'm afraid, I'm afraid of ladders, but I forgot. Mm. Because when we're writing for Janine, I'm really not thinking of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that fear you saw on top of that ladder was pretty, pretty mm-hmm. accurate. It was real. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You're talking about all of these moments and it's making me think, you know, because we get so many great moments with them in the teacher's lounge. And I'm starting to think like, is this Abbott's version of Central Perk? From friends, like it's their, it's their hangout spot. It's that that reliable spot that you know, like if we're in the teachers' lounge, we're gonna get some great group scenes. Mm-hmm. And now I'm just wondering, like, how you guys even get through them, you know, for laughing at each other. Sometimes we we just laugh, but yeah, we just literally just laugh. We really yeah. try to be very professional about it, but there are some moments where we just cannot hold it in. We just can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, no. and it's like, okay, you know, we, we know we're going to get it, but um, I think it adds more fun to the scene too. Like, I don't know. It adds, there was one scene with, with me and uh, Janelle and, 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 and I'm always laughing a lot because I can, see, I can already see the edit and I know what it's, so I'm always laughing and I have to apologize to my coworkers all the time because I feel like you guys are like, what are you even laughing at? But I'm laughing at the way it's going to be betrayed later. So, um, but one of those scenes where I, I, I just was seeing it already in editing was when Janelle, what is it's the betting scene? And I, I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, it's the, the Courtney episode, but I go, I'm going to need to, I'm, I'm taking everybody. So everybody's like, saying, what do I say? <laughs> you say, I'm going to say, I'm going to need to do that file. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and Janelle goes, okay, and <laughs> take it because I was laughing so hard. And Cheryl's right there witnessing this, like kind of down for the moment, like laugh. It just kept taking me out, but it only made me go harder and become even more for Janelle to mock. So it it only heightens it. Oh my I also god, feel that like that's hilarious! Where the laugh was left in the edit. You, if you look close enough, you can see where yeah. laugh. And like we, that was one of the few points where we couldn't get it together and we just had to use it. We cannot it. get it together. I'm not sure there was a take where we get it together. <laughs> One day I, I was on set and it was just um, Tyler and myself. And I said to him, well, bring your little Nissan sandwich with you. And he was like, 
And he just cracked up. And I was like, <laughs> you know, so you, we just never know when it's going to happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys are talking about the writer's room. Uh, is the season two writer's room open yet? It is. And we are so excited. We are so excited with what we're doing already. Uh, you know, Cheryl and Janelle don't know yet, but we're just so, so excited. And it feels so wonderful to get back in the room. And, um, you know, just everyone is firing on all cylinders. Um, we we have one new writer. All of our old writers came back and we have one new writer who coincidentally is named Ava Coleman. I know that's so weird. <laughs> that's what? weird. It's very weird. And wow. Uh, wow. what's funny is she was someone I actually wanted for season one. And um, I didn't even realize that I had named the character the same name as this wow. girl that I knew. It just that's crazy. I didn't know that. <laughs> so, it's so crazy. She like read the original pilot script and was like, so Ava Coleman, huh? And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what life must be for her now. <laughs> I, know, I know. It's so funny. And she's she's fitting right in, bringing new juice to the room. And we are already so excited for the the what we get to do. Like we're losing our minds. And that's a good feeling to come back feeling that way instead of like... Because it can be easy to be plagued by a good first season and almost be intimidated by having to do it again. I was going to ask that exact question. Yeah, it's great that you're funneling the energy a different way instead of feeling the pressure. I was I came prepared to like maybe feel the pressure, but we don't. We 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 feel good. It, it, we feel like we we're going right back to that place we went into when we got to create in the bubble for the first season, harnessing that, that feeling and just pumped about you know doing more of this show. Well, I know a lot of folks are really excited to see it. This truly has been a, um, it's been a great pleasure speaking with all of you. This show it is just wildly funny and I can't wait to see where it goes and to see more from all three of you. Uh, so thank you so much. Quinta Brunson, Cheryl Lee Ralph, goddess Cheryl Lee Ralph and Janelle James for joining us on The Awardist. Thank you so thank much. You. Okay, so I I just have to explain. Uh, you heard me call her <laughs> goddess there. Um, there's there's a backstory to that because I I asked her before the interview started. Does she prefer Cheryl Lee or can I just call her Cheryl? And she said I prefer goddess, but you can just call me. That's Cheryl. right. And um, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. She is she she is a goddess. So that's why you heard me say that there at the beginning. But it's interesting because she is one of those actresses who uh, you know you kind of heard her say there that she she kind of doesn't realize how good she is. She's just kind of there existing, doing her thing. And everyone's just so in awe of the ease with which she Well, she can just shut it down with a look. And I think that's probably, she doesn't even realize how effective, like, you know, Miss Howard gives some very withering uh, glances that will shut it down. (laughs) And uh, I can imagine that she doesn't understand the power of her own, you know, gaze. Yeah. Right. And those and those glances are so important in a show yes. like this where it's that, um, you know, kind of that documentary yes. style um, that they're, you know, they sometimes go in for those close ups. I love that when they dart um, to the and, camera. Right. And, and I loved also hearing that they said, like, sometimes that's actually them, like they are looking at the camera <laughs> operators, um, not actually like it's unintentional yeah. because they're like, can you believe this? This is so funny. But it's their genuine that's reaction. I, yeah, I, I just love it so much. Those little kind of moments that they actually get to laugh and exist 
um, because the material is that it funny. Really is. So, um, yeah, when when the characters get to share in the laugh, because, you know, that bugs me sometimes. I'm going off on a little tangent here. It bugs me when on comedies, people say something funny and the other people around them don't acknowledge yes. that it's funny. I'm like, it's it's OK. You, It's not like you're patting yourself on the back like people would laugh at somebody saying that in exactly. you know if it happened in person so i'm glad on a show like that they they can kind of acknowledge that stuff all right tangent over <laughs> uh don't go anywhere we have another quick break and when we come back it is Kristen's interview with joshua jackson we'll be right back Welcome back. Joshua Jackson earned a legion of loyal and adoring fans with his breakout role on Dawson's Creek playing Pacey Witter. And in the years since, he has starred on the popular Fox series Fringe and Showtime's The Affair. This year, he scrubbed in for the Peacock limited series Dr. Death based on the true crime podcast about Texas neurosurgeon Christopher Dunch, who was accused of injuring dozens of patients and killing two of them. Here now, Joshua Jackson with EW's Kristen Baldwin. I'm excited to talk to you about Dr. Death. So when Patrick McManus first approached you about this role, like, did he have a pitch for you? What was it? And what intrigued you about it? When Patrick McManus first approached me, they were quite deep in the process. So there was not only the podcast, which was pre-existing the show, they had already written all their scripts. They had their lookbook. And most importantly for me, they had all of their re research material done. So when he first came to me, it was, you know, take a look at this, but also if you're interested, here's the whole universe of what this story is. Um, read some right. stuff, listen to some stuff, come back to me, and then I'll tell you my take on both this guy and the story that we're trying to tell. So it was probably the most developed thing I've ever come onto, right, with the amount of work that they'd already put in and the amount of research that was available. Right. And, uh, you know, you have said that at first it was kind of hard for you to get past your judgments of Christopher <laughs> Dunch, who obviously ruined a lot of people's lives, killed some people. How did you push past those judgments? And was there a specific like piece of information or a turning point that kind of helped you break through that wall? Well, it, the, it took a while. The first probably two months that I was, after I'd signed on, the first couple months that I was working on it and really diving into the research materials that Patrick had provided me, I was still very much, I was, it was hard for me to, to let go of my judgments of the character. And then when we got deeper into the rehearsal period and I start, started working with Maggie, some things that Patrick was saying to me that I intellectually understood, but emotionally hadn't kind of got to that place yet started to click in and it it really unlocked um it unlocked the the writing for me once i once i was able to recognize that from his perspective and to make that choice that this man really believes himself to be the heroic center of this story and so right. um once i was able to get out of my own way and start there it kind of unlocked everything else right and it's interesting i read one article um that said that he his lawyers really felt that he thought he was doing the right thing until the trial when he heard all these experts testify 
at how badly he had messed things up. And they said they saw a change in him, like it actually deflated him. Was that something you were aware of? Yeah. So I, so we had access to the transcripts of the trial and also the initial depositions that he did at the police station. Um, and, and some anecdotal accounts of his reactions inside the room. So I knew that that moment had happened for him. I also think that psychologically, the the house of cards that he'd built for himself, I think he was able to re-erect that scaffolding afterwards. But this is the, the price that every narcissist pays at some point in their life, that the, the their, yeah. their sense of self continually inflates to mask whatever insecurity or or psychological uh, deficiency they have until eventually it, it meets something that they can't overcome just purely through their narcissism and it has to and it gets deflated often in a really radical and painful way for that person and i think for christopher dunch he had i mean gone to absurdist levels to try to maintain his sense of self and i do think it was pierce but i also think that he was psychologically so far gone and so incapable of of admitting the evident truth to himself that even and this is just my take but even in that moment where he starts to see that maybe he was actually the problem i think the other side of his brain is already trying to dismiss it i just think i don't think that he would survive if he had to be accountable for the things that he'd done right right and i read that you also observe some live surgeries is that true <laughs> i'm very squeamish so that stresses me out what was that like it well i mean it was necessary because i had no concept of what being in that room meant i my only access to that is is frankly watching other tv shows <laughs> um, <laughs> so i really wanted to understand what that you know I, i'd had some surgeons describe to me the the tenor of being in those rooms and they all described it as a sort of a, a workmanlike area with a forced joviality where i think in order to get past this the psychological weight of what it is that you're doing particularly in in high leverage surgeries like a spinal surgery where if something goes wrong it goes horribly horribly wrong and it was true the 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 surgeries that i observed you go into this place there is no mistaking that everybody is there for a very specific very detailed purpose and then and that's the pressure that's sitting at the base of what they're doing. And then on top of it, they're talking about music and they're having a laugh about the weekend and what are the kids up to? And, and they, you know, they, they create this normalcy inside of this room, which feels anything but normal to an outside observer, I think, so that they're able to push through the weight of what they're doing. But for Dunch, obviously, it manifested itself in very, very different ways. <laughs> Right, right. I want to get your thoughts on something in episode two, where we flash back to Christopher's college days, and he's trying to get on the football team. And there's this scene that really just stuck with me where his friend is trying to teach him a specific play, and he just has to go left instead of right. And instead, he just keeps going the wrong direction over and over and over again. And he thinks he's doing it right. But there's almost this sense that he doesn't know his left from his right. And I found it so disturbing, because it it has so much, it seems to foreshadow so much of what's going to happen. And I wanted to know your thoughts about that scene. And what was your what were you trying to convey in that moment? Well, I think you picked up on it. So some of it is um, finding a place for 
the anecdotal evidence that he did actually have some sort of learning disability or or cognitive deficiency that that maybe he he had an aphasia about left or right or maybe he just had an inability to process information and under pressure he was incapable of um learning from his mistake because the the gear sort of grind to a halt so wanted to put that in but what the what to me what the purpose of that scene is is actually the the pathological need for perfection he he can't take step back and take a deep breath and analyze what he's doing because everything that he does has to be perfect because he's at that point hasn't quite got there but he's on the way to to building a construct of self that is i'm perfect i do everything right everything that i touch is gold and everybody that that i know loves me and that obsessiveness right that blots out any contrary information that to me was what was so great about jumping back into that portion of his life before you see him as the formed thing the monster that he becomes you see all the opportunities for off ramps that that personality had right and all the places where with just a little nudge in a different direction he would have been able to potentially accept himself and then see himself right and in that way mm -hmm. be able to learn as a human being as opposed to the direction that he went in which obviously was catastrophic for himself and every single person he came in contact with. Right, right. You went through several transformations to play this role. Um, for those flashback episodes, is it true you lost 20 pounds? Yeah, yeah. So that so this character was built in two different directions, inside out, trying to come to an emotional understanding, intellectual understanding of the man, and then outside in, because there's this giant span that we go with him. And he underwent a pretty massive change now he was already already a big guy but for our purposes i thought well if i can lose a bunch of weight so when at 19 i look like as skinny as it's possible for me in my 40s to be <laughs> um <laughs> then it gives us a a pretty wide latitude as we go all the way through the show and he starts to thicken out as happens to all of us but then really you know i wanted to give the the widest possible range because then i thought to myself what an amazing thing to be given the opportunity to show this character actually, if he can't conceptualize of it, he's literally physically wearing the weight of what he's doing in the world. And you see, you know, his shoulders mm -hmm. start to come down and everything broadens out, but he just starts to collapse, physically collapse under the weight of his actions. And I thought that was, it's just, it was a really, I don't get a lot of opportunities to to do things like that. And it was a lot of fun to play with with everything, right? All the tools from the emotional side and then everything that you can bring in from the external side. Do you have a go-to weight loss move for when you need to, you know, do that um, for a role? Yeah, stress and anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's tried and true. It's the universal, exactly. <laughs> um, and as you mentioned, you know, as he ages and as he gets deeper and deeper into this sort of you know, quicksand, he he gets heavier and you have prosthetics that get, you know, sort of more and more profound. What was the process of getting into those like and how did it help you get into character? Yeah. So after we did after we finished the the flashback stuff, I was able to put weight back on as we were shooting, which was a much more fun process. And then kind of meet Dunch in the middle. And then at a certain point, because we were 
once we got through a certain uh, point in the series, we were shooting a lot of different pieces in the different timeline. And then it switches over to um, prosthetic. And, you know, there's particularly not the first one, which was pretty small, but the second one, which which was much more noticeable. It gives you the opportunity to carry your body in a different way because you start to, you know, as a man, you start to like explain, you do that awful thing where you sit with your legs wide open. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it just gives you a different carriage. And then when it tips over the next phase, when he's, when he has really started to like significantly put on weight and his health is starting to fail, then it allows you, you know, I'm, I'm tall. So in most of the scenes, I'm, I sort of have a, a physical presence that I can play with around other bodies. And then you see this guy start to just collapse in and collapse in and get both bigger and smaller at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some of the most stressful and powerful scenes in this series are in the operating room, you know, when yeah. Dunch is just like mangling some poor patient and everyone around him is panicked and there's so much emotion. And yet you have to convey it all with your face half covered with a mask, you know, um, what, how did you approach that? And what was the biggest challenge for you in those scenes? Well, that, I mean, there's a bunch of different things happening in there. So from an acting standpoint, you, you just have to trust the, the writing, right? So there's not like an additional level of intensity in your eyes, just because you're, you're sort of locked in here. But you have to trust the director, you have to trust the editor, you have to trust the sound design, which is core to all those things. And you also have to trust that the story, if you took any one of those scenes and just played it as a scene, it might be like a little gory, a little, uh, but in the context of the story, when you know the weight of what's about to happen, the stakes of that scene are already set for you. So all you have to do at that moment, or all I felt I had to do at that moment was to trust that we we had told the rest of the story. So by the time the audience gets into that room and they know, oh shit, this is about to go down, every glance, every gesture, every movement in that room is so heavy because you you have this sense of doom just hanging over the entire scene. So I, yeah, you know, that's, that's a testament, really, I mean, I'll always take the compliment, but that's really a testament <laughs> to, to all the pieces of the show working. So, the, so it wasn't necessarily like additional eye acting. <laughs> it, it was, well, no, it was I mean, uh... again, that's, yeah, it's not, it, like, we call that <laughs> gilding the lily, right? You can't gild the lily. You don't yeah. want to make it arch. You don't want to be like, you know, this guy. But you have to trust yeah. the director that she's going to capture the moment, right? That she's going to get the piece of your hand reaching for the wrong thing and the glance from the from the nurse over here and the, you know, as they catch eyes and have that oh shit moment. And you also have to trust the editor that's going to put the, you know, who's going to stay with your eyes for just long enough to to carry the import of what's going on but not to dissipate the tension and then move over here. And you have to trust the sound designer to, to set this sense of, of impending doom. And when all of the, and the, you know, the DP to, to light it and when all of the pieces are working together. And again, a scene doesn't work as a scene. It works as a piece of a story. So you also mm -hmm. have to trust that you have told the story leading up to that moment for each one of those individual sequences that when you get into that scene, right, that has all of the, the, the 
the the soup has been made. Everything, all the ingredients have been put in, and all we need to do is just stir the pot. By the time we get to that scene, so you just have to trust right. in the process. You have to believe in the story that you're telling, the people that you're telling with it, telling it with, and know that by the time you get there, the the ship has sailed. Like you just need to do your yeah. job as an actor in that scene, and your and your job included telling the rest of the story or your portion of the story, so that that scene can have the impact that it needs to have. Right. So I believe uh, Christopher Dunch is still serving a life sentence in a Texas prison. Did you attempt to get in touch with him? And if not, you know, what was your thinking about not doing that? So in the beginning, I asked if I could, and I was very quickly told, no, I couldn't, because he's he is serving his sentence, but he is actually appealing his sentence. So mm. his lawyers have made him unavailable for a obvious self-incriminating reasons. And as I went, as, as I got over that and got into it and I came to, as I got deeper into the research process, I started to think, and maybe this was a justification, but I started to think that perhaps talking to the man himself would not get me any closer to the truth because I don't think he himself is, is, um, is any closer to the truth. I think he's probably deeply committed to the lies that he's told himself. Right, right. When you are playing a real person, does do you approach the role in a different way? Yes. I mean, so for something like the Laramie Project, I was not only playing a real person, I was actually speaking their specific direct recorded words. So that's a whole other ball of wax. Um, for something like Bobby, you know, it was a composite character anyway. There's documentary evidence about the, the night of the killing of Robert Kennedy. Um, but there's a little bit more leeway to play inside of that because the, the specific character that I was playing was, wasn't famous enough for anybody to have like a, eh, I don't believe it. And Dunch would be somewhere in between those two things. People have a general sense if they listen to the podcast or they remember the, mm -hmm. the headlines, a general sense of like this guy and the horrible things that he did. But there's not such a, there's not such a clear, um, uh, public perception of the character y you know it's the it's the impossibility of something like playing lincoln there's no documentary evidence of lincoln and how he spoke how he walked how he talked but we all sort of have this conception of what that should be <laughs> so when you're mm -hmm. daniel day lewis you're both trying to play a character fighting with 200 years of public perception um and given no evidence to support or or deny what what uh, is backing that public perception. So it's not quite as tricky as playing someone who's like really popularly famous. Um, but you have mm -hmm. to be mindful of the fact that a real person exists and people have a preconception of who that person is. So you've talked about this shot that opens the, the series, you know, it's this chilling shot of Dunch. He's in prison. He's not blinking. He's staring at the camera. Like there's so many things you can imagine that he's thinking as a viewer it's very chilling, but I also found it reassuring because this the series is opening by telling me he's in jail. You're going to be okay. He, he, you know, yeah. you're going to be okay. And I guess you know, was that part of the the thought of opening that way? And what were you trying to convey with that that very sort of chilling stare? Well, the there was a lot of debate about whether to put that shot at the top for precisely that reason. Like, do you? do you undercut the drama of what's to come when you foreshadow where we end? And I think Patrick was right that 
the answer is no, because it the journey is the destination. Everybody knows if you spend five minutes Googling, you know that he's in jail. So um, I think it was it was the right choice. And you still don't know what you're in for on the way to getting him there. It's still, mm-hmm. I think, a much wilder journey than you could possibly imagine. Um, there, it is not a linear path from we meet this man, he does these things, he goes on trial. So um, I think it was a wise choice to put it there. And, you know, I wanted to, I, I, even though I didn't think it was going to live right there, I wanted to do that one. So the, the lens is us, right? We are the audience. We're watching this story and any story. And it is off-putting when somebody looks you directly in the eye um, for any long period of time. And it also speaks to a like the place that he's in in that moment. There is a lot going on with him. And I think it speaks to the psychology of somebody who is both desperate for... Cr- connection and absolution but totally incapable of understanding how to achieve that and at the same time disgusted Mm -hmm. by himself for wanting it and so i thought it was a great way to challenge the audience with that shot right here's he's in his final form here is this humunculus and he's daring you to or i i was i'm hoping he's daring you to feel empathy let him off the hook try to understand it's a i wanted it to be challenging and off-putting to force the audience immediately into being like oh god he's looking right at me what is what do i feel in this moment what am i what am i supposed how am i supposed to react um so that was the idea behind it i hope it achieved that yes and i have to say i'm glad you put it at the top because i'm not sure i could have survived if i didn't know from the beginning Um, and you've pointed out in uh, some interviews that, you know, the system didn't fail because it was certainly designed to protect a doctor like Dunch because he made money for hospitals and that's what they were looking for. But you also have made the point that, you know, we as a society are kind of conditioned like here's a tall, handsome white guy in a doctor's coat and, you know, oh, he must be a good person. Um how much do you think that preconception sort of played into Dunch's own sense of infallibility? I think hugely. I, I think I, I think all of the the toxic cross currents of our culture played into creating Dunch, right? So there's a certain reverence that we have for the position of doctor because we don't meet them in an open market situation. They have knowledge that is that is unknown to us and unknowable to us without training that also happens to be sometimes the key to our survival or our continued existence in the way that we want to exist so it's a massively unequal place our culture has since its inception and continues to be uh, more forgiving and more rewarding of white men and particularly tall white men in positions of authority um, of a certain certain socioeconomic class, and so yeah, I think his and he was raised inside of a very traditional and patriarchal family, so that reinforces um, that that sense of self. Um, so yeah, I think all of those things lead up to. I mean, he he 
again, it's, it's why I love that second episode so much, because it gives you that place to see the unformed version of that, of that personality type. Um, and hopefully mm -hmm. see things that we can all recognize either that, you know, we recognize in ourselves or that we recognize in people that we know of like, man, if you can just get them right there, <laughs> right before this thing happens, or just give them a little mm -hmm. nudge, maybe we can get that toxic personality off that path and, and bring them around to the light. Just sort of anecdotally, my husband is a psychiatrist, and I got a call, a spam call from top doctors of 2022. And they were like, we'd like to talk to him about his video. And I was like, ah, I just hung up immediately. <laughs> oh, my God. Dr. Death. <laughs> So just know that that horrifying company business. is still in Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh at least you're you're not only telling a great story, you're uh you're helping educate <laughs> the yeah. well, the public out there. And, it, and and I hope that that is actually true because the I mean look, so I'm Canadian, right? I, I've lived in the states for a very long time, but I was still raised in Canada. It is to this day hard for me to understand as somebody who wasn't raised inside of it, why Americans are accepting of the of medical system that they have. But when I'm, when I try to understand it in much the same way that Americans relationship to guns is hard for people who don't come from gun culture to understand Americans acceptance of its medical system is, I think, because we don't know better down here. Right. We, I, we have, I had the benefit of growing up in a place. So I'm asthmatic. Right. And we wasn't a ton of money in my household when I was growing up. So in the States, my asthma medicine would have been a really significant burden on my mother as she was trying to raise her two kids. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously I need to breathe and she would have made that happen, but she would have borne an unnecessary burden for something that we in Canada just except is the right of all citizens for me to breathe, for you to have your diabetes medicine, whatever the thing is, right? We have this conception that we're all in this together. Everybody pays into the system. Those who need take out and those who don't are happy to help out their fellow citizens. So it's hard for me to conceive of accepting a system that is, even though it won't tell you this, but is so evidently <laughs> profit first uh, mm -hmm. maintenance second and patients somewhere down the list, right? And I hope that our show has that that dual effect. That on the one hand, you just go and watch a, a compelling story, and you are mostly creeped out, and then uh, and then eventually vindicated um, in your <laughs> your hope for humanity. But also to allow you know us to watch something like this and be like man that's not good that should not be how it is that that is an unacceptable outcome for a a massively wealthy first world country to allow a system that preys upon our citizens at their most vulnerable place right right well, thank you so much. And uh, it was great talking to you. Congratulations thank on, you. on the show. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Okay, I have a bone to pick 
um, with him. Well, first of all, let me say that was a fantastic interview. And if people have not watched the series, they should because he's so, so so good good. in it. Um, But my bone to pick, I'm a little pissed that someone like him loses weight when he has stress and anxiety (laughs) because that is not what happens to me. I definitely eat my feelings. (laughs) And so it becomes it becomes a a puffy situation as opposed to a depuff situation. (laughs) But yeah, I think perhaps he meant the stress and anxiety of the timeline of having to lose the weight by a certain amount of time. Yes. Um, But then, you know, he did get to put some weight back on, but not so much that the rest was prosthetics. (laughs) So... Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, worth mentioning here, as, as he kind of said, you know, it was a bit of a uh, time crunch um, because Jamie Dornan was originally cast in this and then he had to drop out for scheduling conflicts. And honestly, I feel like it might have worked out for the yeah, best. Yeah, I think, you know, Jamie Dornan's great. I mean, not to say ja- Jamie Dornan's a great actor. Yes, Go watch absolutely. The Fall, by the way. He plays a serial, like a charming serial killer in that. And he's really mm-hmm. freaking scary. Uh so we yeah. know he can do scary uh, and charming, but I really think this was uh, a great fit uh, for Josh Jackson, yeah. and he's he's all um, a little unexpected. a little unexpected, and I think uh, it really plays to his strengths in that he is so charming yeah. and charismatic, and you just trust him. You just look at his face and you trust yeah. him, and that's a lot of what made that character and that person in real life so dangerous is people put would easily put their mm-hmm. trust in him because he was you know handsome he was a doctor he was tall and and their their faith was was very tragically yeah. uh, misplaced yeah well the the charm is certainly all there for Joshua Jackson and uh you know time will tell very soon in less than a month if uh you know that all pays off for him and and uh he lands a nomination here um so we have uh, a couple more episodes to come while this voting window is open next week I've got to give you all a little tease of this um we assembled a roundtable of some of the top contenders in the limited series actress category and I am still riding a high off of that interview. <laughs> uh, let me let me tell you the names quickly because you've got to tune in next week. Amanda Seyfried, Anne Hathaway, Adrian Warren, Elle mm-hmm. Fanning, Beanie Feldstein, Julia Garner, Jessica Biel, and Emmy Rossum. I am telling you Holy guys, cow. they... Right. They were just thrilled to be be in each other's presence. They wanted to like set up their own private Zoom or like get together in person because they were like, look, we all have things to talk about. And I was like, great. You guys let me know when to be there. And they were like, uh, yeah, sure. You can come too. Yeah. I'm like, oh, oh, I, I thought we were talking about recording part two of this. Um, but they were like, no, no, private ladies lunch. I'm like, oh, Goodbye. Fine, whatever. Yeah. Um, but so that is coming up. And I also teased Pachinko. Uh, so we still have some really fantastic interviews to come here uh, while voting is happening. And then, of course, you know, uh, award season doesn't stop there. We will be going into July with nominations and uh, lots to come after those nominations happen. So uh, I, I just want to thank all of you for being with us so far. And please stick with us because there is a lot more great stuff to come on the awardist. Uh, and with that, uh, I bid you adieu because that is all we have for this episode. Kristen, thanks so much for joining me. 
always happy to be here. And maybe you can warn people that I'll come back uh, another week. Yes. Uh, fair warning right now. The uh, <laughs> the shots are being fired for sure. Um, because, you know, I, I think we may want to talk about some predictions before those come out. So uh, that said, uh, if you all like what you heard here, please be sure to follow, rate the podcast and leave us an award winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation going with us, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We'll see you back here next week. Bye. Bye. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.